2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9. Paul says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. In this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, emphasis on holy. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And Father, we just ask that, Lord, even as we read that last statement, that you would kind of put your Lord, your amen on this book this morning as we have studied through the entirety of it, taking in the truths and the lessons and things that you've spoken to us collectively as a congregation and just individually. Lord, we just ask one more time for this book of 2 Corinthians that your spirit would prepare us and that you would speak through the ministry and the person of your spirit what we need to hear this day. And we thank you in advance for such in Jesus' name. And everyone said Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, relationships are a essential part of doing life properly. And part of the reason for that is we were created by God, by design to be relational beings. So to have a degree of interaction with other people is always important as well as it is the right way for us to function if we are going to be healthy in this journey on this earth. That being said, to live in isolation or to live in disconnection from other people is always wrong. That's not God's intention for us. It's not God's design, and it always is going to be detrimental to our health as a person. We were created to have relationship really in two ways, both on the vertical as well as on the horizontal. We were created to have relationship with God in a personal and a real way, not just to be a religious person doing rituals and spiritual routines, but to have a genuine, real relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we're also created on the horizontal to have relationships with people. That is to have interactions with others to some degree on an ongoing basis in our life. And all relationships, be it vertical or horizontal can either really be in one of two states. They're either healthy and we're experiencing a healthy relationship or a relationship can be unhealthy or some might even say toxic. And God's plan for us is that we would be experiencing healthy relationships, both a healthy relationship with him and healthy relationships amongst one another. And it appears to me as we conclude 2 Corinthians that that is what Paul is seeking to emphasize as he closes up our letter. If you look with me back in our text in verse 9, Paul begins by declaring there, for we are glad, he says, in a relational way, when we are weak and you are strong. So notice, due to a love for these fellow believers, Paul emphasizes here that he and his ministry team, he says, are glad or more than happy, the idea is, to be weakened in themselves if it led to the Corinthian believers being strengthened. So that statement speaks of the giving nature of love that should be expressed in proper and healthy relationships. Notice Paul was not looking to utilize their relationship to strengthen himself. He wasn't seeing the relationship as a resource or manipulating his relationship with them as the church or fellow believers as a resource to strengthen himself or to improve his condition. Paul emphasizes it was the exact opposite. He's emphasizing we, our ministry team, he says we were willing to serve, to suffer, to sacrifice, to spend ourselves in whatever ways we could to invest into what betters your lives, to be giving 
unto them, expressing his love. He was willing to be personally weakened, he says, poured out to empower the Corinthians. Paul said just in our last chapter together, remember chapter 12, verse 15, he said there, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And Paul said, I'm, we're willing to do this. We're willing to be spent and to spend for your souls, for your welfare, for your betterment. And, you know, as I, as I think about that, in fact, even this morning as I was reading over my, my notes and preparing a little bit this morning, just again, as I often do on early on a Sunday morning, just reviewing what the Lord's already helped me to put together. I, I was thinking about the reality, and perhaps the Lord was bringing to mind, that it seems like we can kind of utilize our lives particularly relationally, we can utilize our lives kind of in three different ways. One way to utilize your life is to waste your life. I don't recommend that. But we've all been there, done that, and we know people, sadly, right, that our hearts are sad for that are doing that. They're basically just wasting their life. They're not using it for God's intended purpose, and they're using it in a way where they're just wasting their life. Another way we can utilize our life, I think, is we can enrich our lives. That is, everything about our life is for our enrichment. It's for our benefit. So we utilize our life in a way, predominantly spending our time, energy, efforts, sacrifices, investments, everything to make us happier, to make our life better. So it's this project for my happiness, and it's this effort because I like to do that. And so basically, everything we're doing, we're just enriching our life, making our life better, making more to spend more, making more money to make our life better, and we're enriching our lives. The third way that we could utilize our lives is to spend our lives. That is to spend our lives to bless others, to serve others, to invest into others, to do what we can. As Paul says, we will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's, I think, God's recommendation, that we would spend our lives, that we would invest our lives in valuable ways, in love and for eternal purposes, willing to incur personal cost or pay the price, we might say, even personal cost in ways to try and enrich the lives and improve the lives of other people, to give and serve, to make others stronger and particularly stronger spiritually. And here we see, I think, as Paul mentions these things, a mark of healthy relationships. They're characterized by love being expressed in sacrifice. Paul says, if we have to be weakened, depleted, incur costs to make you stronger, to make your status better, to do things to help you become stronger spiritually, Paul says we will gladly be spent in that way. And healthy relationships will always be characterized by this, by a giving spirit by a sacrificial attitude expressing love, being willing to pour yourself out to bless or improve the other party. When someone is using a relationship in the opposite, that's called unhealthy. When someone uses people as resources and then disposes of them as soon as they don't serve their interest, that's called unhealthy relationship. When a person uses people as a resource to enrich their life and you're willing to drain other people and weaken other people and take, take, take from other people, that's called unhealthy relationship. The word of God upholds here healthy relationships are characterized by loving sacrificial acts. Paul says we'll weaken ourselves if it makes you empowered and stronger. Paul goes on to say, verse 9, and this we also pray, notice he says, that you may be made complete. So Paul directly indicates here that they were asking God to help them in their lives. Notice that first statement Paul makes in verse nine there, this we pray for you. Now, I know that I may be stating the obvious and I kind of tend to have a gift for that. My family often reminds me, you've already said that dad. In other words, there anything novel you're ever going to say, you're saying it again just in a different way, but for the seventh time. But it's kind of my gift to the body of Christ. But Paul, notice, says here, this we pray for you. And, and the reason I draw your attention to this, though incredibly obvious, is Paul displayed his love by doing what? Spending time praying for those he cared about. And Paul's talking about being spent and weakening himself and doing what he can to enrich and strengthen the lives of others. And Paul can't help but draw attention that he displayed his love by spending time 
praying for people he cared about, for those that he was concerned about. Perhaps there is no more loving thing we can do, right, in a relationship than to pray for other people. There are lots of ways we may in our relationships try and help and assist, and, but there's nothing more valuable we can do than to take time to ask a God of all power, a God of all wisdom, a God of all love, a God of all resources who can be ever present with people, even when we can't help them, to ask God to work in people's lives, to do things to assist them, to ask for God to intervene in someone's current life situation to work powerfully on their behalf, to do things in their life that we are just not able to do as another human being, to help them, to assist them, perhaps because we often, as we do, realize that as much as we may love someone or even want to help someone, we can't do certain things for people. There are certain areas where we are just limited. There is only so far we can go in our help. Yet, here's the thing, here's where we're never limited. We can ask a limitless, powerful God to do things in people's lives. We can pray for people and ask that God would intervene and orchestrate wonderful things to help them. I think one component of a healthy relationship is praying for one another. Often we overlook that. I tell you this this morning. Take time to ask God to work in the person whose life you care about. Pray for them. Ask for God to work in their life accordingly. Realize that truly the best help we can provide in our display of love for another may not be giving somebody a little more money or doing something circumstantially or even having another conversation with them. And I'm not saying these other things can't be expressions of love. But the greatest expression of love that we can honestly do more continuously than anything is to intercede in prayer and to pray for them and say, God, work in their life. By your power, Lord, do things in their life. Help them in this way. Lord, there's, I'm so helpless, I can't do anything. And I'll tell you, some of the healthiest relationships you have in your life are the people who love you enough to pray for you. The people who pray for you regularly, many times are the ones who actually love you the most. And one of the best ways we can all improve health in relationships is to pray for that other person, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, whether it's a brother or sister in the Lord. One of the best things we can do to improve relationship is to pray for others. There's that great health that comes as you pray and God works in a person's life in a way that we never could to bring change, to bring assistance, to provide. And I'll tell you, in relationships, it becomes the best chance when things aren't healthy in a relationship that change will come. It won't be through that one more compulsory argument you have. It will be by begging God to work in someone's heart and to work in your heart. That is the greatest chance of change that we possibly could ever have to ask God to work. And look what Paul prays for them. He tells them in verse nine, he says, this we pray. And I think the idea is on top of other things. This wasn't the only thing, but he says, we pray that you may be made, he says, verse nine, complete. Now, that term that Paul uses there, we pray that you may be made complete, rendered complete in the New King James Version. The Greek term there has many shades to its ideas. And if you have different translations of the Bible than the New King James, you'll notice it's rendered in different ways in different translations. Some translations render that statement that you may be brought to a completed condition or to a right state. Some translations render that verse there, that, that part of it, that you would be brought to maturity, that you would be mended, that you would be restored. And this is kind of the different colors of this word here. Uh, one Greek scholar, which I am not, I'll read you his statements regarding this Greek term that Paul used there. The, the scholar says this in regards to that term complete. He says, it conveys the fundamental idea of putting something into its appropriate condition so it will function well. It carries the idea of making whole by fitting together in order to arrange properly. When applied to that which is weak and defective, it denotes setting right what has gone wrong or to restore back to a former condition, whether mending broken nets or setting broken bones. 
So the idea of the term that Paul uses there, translated in different shades and ideas, it implies someone who needs help in their current struggling condition. That's the general concept. Paul's praying that God would bring help to someone who's struggling in their current condition. Their life is lacking. It's hurting. It's struggling in some way. They're not operating well, or we might say they're not operating to full capacity. And so Paul's praying that God would help in that way. Now, that could be for various reasons, right? It could be because perhaps an individual, as some were in Corinth, uh, is dealing with the effects of sin. And the harmful influences of sin have got them in a broken condition or they're off track. They're not in a right place. And Paul's praying that God would complete the work of his spirit to bring them to confession and brokenness and repentance and restore them back into a right condition. It could be as well that someone could be in a struggling condition because of perhaps maybe just immaturity in some areas. And so perhaps the person needs God to work in their life to complete the process of helping them to grow up a little bit or to mature spiritually or to be able to grow in their relationship with the Lord a little bit. It also could be something that's happening because maybe someone's life has been damaged or weakened due to some suffering that they've gone through. Maybe some very difficult thing or painful experience they've undergone and now their life like a torn net needs to be mended like a broken bone that needs to be reset so that they can heal. Whatever the case, Paul was asking for the Lord to supernaturally work in the lives of these Corinthian believers in such a way where he would bring to completion the work that was needed because of the condition they were in where they were currently struggling. So whether that was healing what was broken, mending a damaged and broken heart, whether that was completing the process of bringing people to maturity who needed to grow a little bit, whether it was completing the process to restore someone who had meandered spiritually or to help someone who was dysfunctional, Paul was asking that the Lord would work in that way to bring their life to an appropriate condition that God intends to be experiencing. He's saying, Lord, please work in their life. Lord, please help them. Bring them out of this condition. Lord, bring them into a better condition. They're struggling right now. Bring them out of this condition. Lord, complete your good work in their life to bring them to that better place. It's a prayer for progress, for spiritual development, for the soul to prosper and have an improved experience. And I'll tell you, that kind of praying can do wonders for people's lives to improve their relationship with God if they're immature and they need to just grow up a little bit spiritually or if they're bogged down with pain and sorrow and hardship and are just overwhelmed by that spirit of heaviness that the Lord would help them to, to heal and to be able to recuperate where they can kind of regain some traction and not be overwhelmed and they become mended and begin to heal or whether they're in sin and they need to be set free. It can do wonders for their relationship with the Lord. And when relationship with the Lord becomes healthy as well, that causes human relationships to become more healthy also because the two are always directly tied together. Paul goes on, verse 10, to say, Therefore, I write these things, being absent, he says, lest being present, I should use sharpness. The idea is severity, needing to be sharp in his tone and in his dealing with them, according to the authority which the Lord has given me, for edification and not for destruction. Paul's mentioned this idea before earlier in the letter here. He's referring to how he understood that he had received genuine spiritual authority from the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle in the early church, as a pastor teacher and church planner, as Paul went around and planted churches like Corinth to help provide leadership and to guide the Lord's people into what would be best for their spiritual lives. He had been if you might say, authorized by the throne of God. He had been authorized by Jesus, the chief shepherd, and assigned and sent, and the Lord authorized him with power to serve in this way. And for that reason, Paul has been giving a lot of spiritual instruction in both of these letters that we've looked at together recently, both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, as well as we talked about just last time together. Paul has also made multiple visits 
to the people there in Corinth. He's visited them multiple times. He's planning to visit them again. That's why he's referencing this at the end of his letter here. And Paul, in these things, has been addressing some sinful practices that were persisting there in some of the lives of the people in the church at Corinth that were very detrimental to their own welfare, to their human relationships, and even to the condition of the church. Some of them have we seen were living in persistent sexual sin. Others were in selfish and cruel ways, just mistreating people very wrongly. And Paul's been asking for them to make things right spiritually, to make a change, to respond, to recognize that they were doing what was not pleasing God. And Paul's been asking both for their own welfare, for the health of the church, and even for their testimony in a healthy way among the city of Corinth, that the church would be a light in a dark and immoral society and be something offering a different atmosphere. But yet, as we've seen, they kept persisting in willful disobedience, forcing Paul to ultimately, after grace and patience and continual efforts, to kind of become a little bit more stern, as he's been talking about in these last chapters here. He mentions how he's been writing these warnings and instructions. He says here, look, I write these things to you being absent because I'm hoping for a response, a good response. I don't want to, when I get there, Paul says, have to be stern. I don't want to have to use sharpness in the way that I address you or spend time with you. Paul preferred not to exercise his spiritual authority from the Lord in a strong way or in a severe way. He didn't want to have to to do such, to kind of be kind of like the father who at a certain point realizes I have got to become stern. I, it's necessary now. I've tried to be gracious. I've tried to be kind, but I also realize I am a father. I am the head of this home. And there is a time when I have got to be stern with a rebellious child or, or in a situation with the family. And Paul says, I really don't want to do that. I don't want, Paul wanted them to address the situation themselves so that when he came there, instead, they could have breakfast burritos and have a good time. That's what Paul wanted. Can I just, if you could just deal with this before I get there, then we can have sweet fellowship, not me come and have to be really sharp and really stern with people who aren't repenting of their sin. And I'll tell you, nothing is better in relationships, is it not, than when people make changes on their own isn't that always the best way nobody enjoys in a relationship situation having to force or compel someone to change or to demand and give ultimatums for change that process is never enjoyable it's the last recourse it's the thing we never want to have to get to That's not what's most healthy. What's most healthy is when it is brought to our attention that what we are doing is wrong and we take ownership for it. And we responsibly say, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I am wrong. No excuses. I want to make it right. And we make it right on our own. And and Paul, this is what he's saying. I'm writing these things because I was hoping that you'd make it right on your own so that when I come there, I don't have to be severe. But notice Paul understood the proper purpose and use of his own spiritual authority. He mentions in verse 10 here, he says, according to the authority, notice, which the Lord has given to me for edification and not destruction. Paul knew his authority, notice, was not something he acquired because he was more holy as an apostle. Paul knew the authority that he had from the Lord was not some elevated status he'd obtained in the church. That through achievement and promotion and achievement and promotion, now he was an authorized person in the body of Christ. This wasn't Paul's mindset at all. He knew that he had been entrusted with a stewardship from the chief shepherd, Jesus, who's the head of the church, who gave him a portion of his authority, entrusting it to him to use it to represent Jesus well as the chief shepherd and overseer, and that Paul was just an under-shepherd and at times was letting his life, being authorized by the Lord to serve in that role of leadership or pastoral care and so forth and guidance. And that's why I think he says here, I don't want to be sharp and stern and severe. He says, the Lord gave me authority for edification. I don't want to have to come in with destruction like a wrecking ball. Paul says, that's not ever what I would want to do. Paul knew, and I'm so appreciative that he says this, 
that his spiritual role of authority given to him was not to bully people in the body of Christ. I don't like bullies in society. I loathe bullies in the church. That's disgusting. I don't like when people bully people in a schoolyard or in a business setting. But when you have someone in the body of Christ that has some degree of spiritual authority and they're bossing people around or using their authority to take advantage or to kind of let everybody know who's in charge and to behave in a way where they're, you know, kind of being sharp and severe in their tone. And there's this kind of this perverse enjoyment of letting people know who's in charge Who's the one that's, you know, got the, the, the determination and don't challenge me kind of a thing? And, and to me, that, that's an absolute abuse of authority. It makes me sad and it makes me honestly quite disgusted and offended when I see husbands behave like this with their wives. Who genuinely have spiritual authority from the Lord as the head of their household, as a husband or as a father. And rather than have influence because they've exhibited respect and they know how to lead their wives and their families firmly with healthy spiritual authority. Instead, because they've lost respect and they have no influence, they become bullies and they become nasty and they use their authority in a way where they're just basically kind of throwing their weight around and they get harsh and demanding. That's not healthy. And it's even more tragic as well to me if a, you know, a leader in the body of Christ or a pastoral figure begins to abuse their authority in this way. Paul says the Lord gives us authority and leadership to serve, to build people up, to bless people, he says. That role or opportunity is to build up lives. He said it's not for destruction. It's not to harm people or to hurt people. It's always to do what we can to be authorized to help people. To have a privilege and an opportunity, says, that we have authority from the Lord to intervene in people's lives, to assist them to grow or to help them to get on track or to do things to provide guidance and leadership to make their lives better. And look, let me just say this morning, always please keep this in mind if you have any degree of authority from the Lord. And the Lord gives us authority in different ways. Like I said, it could be a a, a man in his marriage or with his children. It could be maybe the Lord gives you some degree of authority and something that you do as a leader in life or maybe in the body of Christ. Always remember, this is what authority is for. It's to build up people. It's to serve people and to help people. That's what that role and opportunity is for, not to abuse or misuse that authority in harmful ways of proving to everybody who's in charge where you damage lives more than you do assist people. And let me just say as well, please keep that concept in mind as you assess and embrace who you're willing to let provide leadership in your life. So to all the single ladies, there was a song like that, wasn't there? I didn't mean it that way, but it just, I'm always having a conversation in here. If you're not married, Recognize God's design for marriage. And before you go to that altar and put the ring on, take in serious consideration, do I want to allow this man to have a degree of proper biblical authority over my life as a wife and over our home? Assess that. How do they manage authority? How will they utilize their authority as a leader? Assess that. Be careful. You've got a parachute until the day you get to the altar. I tell people that all the time. You've got a parachute. Be wise. And I would say as well, look, whenever you're going to submit yourself to any degree of spiritual authority, a leader, a pastor, whatever, always assess how do they manage authority? How do they utilize the authority that the Lord has given to them and entrusted to them? Very, very important. Paul says, verse 11, finally, and you know whenever a pastor says that, there's really a couple more things coming. And there it is right there. Finally, oh, he's only got one more thing to say. No, there's four more verses. Finally, brethren, he says, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And he says, the God of love and peace will be with you. So notice Paul is going to give some closing counsel now. Again, how to do relationships well knowing that he's going to give a few exhortations. And his mind is, if you would just observe these few simple instructions, things would get better there at Corinth. If you put these things into practice, it will help relationships among the church. And notice Paul's tone, if you would, is very loving and affectionate 
as he concludes this letter here, despite all the relational mistreatment that Paul has experienced from the Corinthians, right? We know, having studied both letters, the Corinthians have really given Paul some real heartburn over a lot of different things. And there's been some genuine mistreatment, some hurtful things done. But Paul, as he concludes the second letter in years of this, he's not resentful. He's not bitter. He's not angry with them there. Notice he calls them in a very affectionate way. Verse 11, he calls them brethren. That's a family term. That's an affectionate term. My brethren. The idea is saying my dear family whom I love. And then he says there, verse 11, farewell. That's a kind departure word. The idea is we bid that you would fare well as you go your way. This is what Paul's saying. My dear family says, I bid that you would fare well or do well in the days ahead. Some translations render that rejoice. The idea there is Paul would be saying, I wish you all the happiness. I wish you the absolute best. What a great example modeled by Paul to a group of people who had given him some really hard times. They had heard him in their words and in their actions, but yet Paul here is a good leader and example, models Christian love and Christ's forgiveness. Despite what you've done, he says, I, I wish you well there in Corinth. I wish you the best that things would go good in the days ahead. And then he gives some parting instructions and a couple brief exhortations. The first one he says there in verse 11 is be complete. Now there's that same term again that we saw up in verse nine, how he was praying that they'd be made complete. They would be brought from a dysfunctional state to a proper state. So notice Paul now instructs them to be complete after telling them that he's prayed that they would become complete. So Paul's saying, look, I prayed this for you, asking God would work on his end, but he says, I'm also exhorting you, cooperate with God's work in the process. God, I'm asking him to work. I'm praying that he'll do this. But he says, I'm encouraging you, cooperate with the power of God. That is, yield and submit to what God's doing. Comply with what God's trying to do, bringing you into a better condition, the idea is. So Paul would be saying, therefore, let's say to the person who's struggling with sin, He's saying, look, I'm praying that God would complete the process of making you confess and be broken and repent and get on a right track spiritually. But Paul's saying, look, even as I'm praying for that, he says, I'm telling you, you take steps practically to get free of that sin. Choose to turn away, put boundaries up in your life, do things to cooperate with God's restoration to get you out of sin. If he's talking about mending relationships, look, I'm praying that your relationship would be mended, but you do your part too. Help mend the nets. Do what you can on your end to try and bring restoration in practical ways. If he's talking about maturity or growth, as we talked about, he's saying, hey, on your end, take the spiritual discipline to put into place some practices that will help you to mature. Read your Bible, pray. Be in church consistently. I'm praying that God would complete the maturity process, but cooperate with God. Make an effort to grow up. Do the things that you can. If he's talking about the person whose life is hurting or suffering or broken, that like a, a ripped net needs to be mended or a broken bone that needs to be restored. Paul's saying, look, I'm praying that God would complete the healing process, but he's saying, pursue the healing process and do the things that you can do to cooperate with God as well. Don't stiff arm God when he's trying to heal you. Say, God, I am so broken. If you don't heal me, I'll never heal. God, I need to press into you more now than ever, or I'm never going to be healed. I'm going to be a torn and tattered net forever. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace, after you've suffered a while, notice a while, not forever, suffered a while, desires to restore you, to make you strong and settled again. And it is so important for us, whatever the condition, wanting the better condition God has for us, that we cooperate with God, that we do our part in efforts and yielding and obedience and faith, even as God is working in us through the prayers and his spiritual work in our lives. The second thing he says in verse 11 is be of good comfort. The idea is encourage and comfort each other as you do life together. Do those things, he says, look for ways to comfort the hurting to comfort those who are downcast or struggling. Do and say things that bring encouragement to people who are low and who are discouraged, 
who need a pick-me-up in some way because they're weary. You know, I think we would all fairly say lots of things happen to us as people on this earth that cause us to be hurting, to be discouraged, to be down, and we want to let the ministry of the Holy Spirit work through our lives as Christians, realizing there are lots of hurting people around me. There are lots of beat up people, bloody people, wounded people. And man, to be someone to just be an encouragement to them, to comfort somebody, to be someone to speak a word of comfort or a word of encouragement. What a wonderful relationship building thing to help in that way. Paul says thirdly as well in verse 11 to them, be of one mind. That is seek to be unified. Avoid doing things that would cause division unnecessarily. Despite natural differences and various views and different perspectives that no doubt the church had there in Corinth. Yes, it's possible to have a group of God's people and they have some different views, some different perspectives. Wait a minute, we're all Christians. Don't all Christians think this way? No. That's why the Bible talks about convictions. One man esteems every day alike. One man esteems one day above another. One says, hey, I can, can eat this. The other says, I can't eat that. It bothers my con-. convictions. So he says, look, there may be different views and different perspectives and convictions. But he says, we should try to think the same way and be of one mind on the big issues. The bigger issues of importance. And to recognize, hey, in some areas, we can and should have the same purpose. Try to find paths to have the same mindset, Paul says, where it really matters. To try and be of the same mindset in those areas. And I'll tell you something by way of application. One of the greatest ways as Christians and as a church family, we can do this to be of one mind is when we assemble together for worship just like we're doing this morning. And I'll tell you why. Because when we come into this room collectively and the team begins to lead us in a song and the words go up on a screen and we are all singing the exact same lyrics to God. And we're expressing the same words and the same statements and the same sentiments from our heart. Guess what we're doing? We're all of one mind in that moment. We're all saying the same thing to God, thinking the same thing to God. In one way, spiritually, we're becoming of one mind. And then what happens? Then we, in worship, progress, and we have a Bible study together. And then we're opening and we're looking at the same passage and the truths of that passage. And the Holy Spirit, as he's speaking to us collectively and individually, is speaking the same things to us. And again, what's happening? In that moment, we're becoming of one mind, at least in spiritual things. And I think this is just a wonderful thing. As we come together, it helps us to all the more be of one mind as we participate together in assembly times of worship. And sometimes being of one mind is a matter of just praying through things. Sometimes it's learning to yield. It's doing Philippians 2 where I say, look, I got to consider others better than myself. And I'm going to look out not only for my own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when we're of one mind like that, relationships get better. There's more harmony. There's more unity. There's less dysfunction. He then says in verse four, and live in peace. And I think that could speak of two things. That is, seek to be a peaceful person yourself. Live in peace. Rather than being a human being whose disposition is always agitated or restless or disruptive or unstable, seek to be a person who's living in peace so that you can bring some peace into your home some peace onto your job site, some peace into relationships, that you can be that person who brings the benefit of having peaceful relationships. Because you know as well as I do, people enjoy interacting with what? Peaceful people. Calm people. Stable people. Right? That's what we all like. We like interacting in those kind of relationships. Toxic relationships, unhealthy relationships, are what? the byproduct of us being connected to someone whose life is in chaos. And as we're connected to someone whose life is in chaos, it's like we get sucked into their tornado. It's just being connected. And all of a sudden, we're sucked into the tornado of this toxic relationship. Nobody likes that, right? So God's saying, 
Try and be somebody who lives in peace. Don't be the tornado. Don't, don't, don't be that person. Try and be the person who brings and interjects peace and stability in environments and relationships and atmospheres. And I think the other idea here as well, live in peace, is be that person that seeks to maintain peace in relationships when there's a disruption of peace. Because we know you can have the best relationship in the world, two people who love Jesus. At the end of the day, any healthy relationship is going to periodically be disrupted by offenses, misunderstandings, issues, disagreements. But in those times, we can seek to be a peacemaker, to be someone who tries to restore the peace or maintain the peace. Paul says in Romans 12, as much as it depends on you, on your part, seek to live peaceably with other people. It takes two people, but he says on your end, do the best you can to live peaceably and let God interact and work with the other person on their end. So honest question, I think, since by natural default, I'm a selfish person, I'm a broken individual from birth with my sinful condition, how do we overcome our selfish human weakness so that we don't have unhealthy relationships and actually put into practice the very things that Paul is exhorting the believers to do here, you and I as well? Where do we find the needed power to live in peace with people? to be someone who is encouraging and comforting? Where do we find the love and peace and ability to exercise that in our relationships as Paul instructs? Well, the answer is we commit to doing what God asks. And then Paul says, look at the end of our verse there. He says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. That is to empower you, to assist me. Notice, God will be with you. The Bible promises this wonderful thing that God's presence is with us as children of God, that God inhabits us. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. God gives us a part of himself, and the Spirit is within his children. The Spirit of God is within the church. And so Paul reminds them here, look, just seek to do what I'm asking, and God will be with you. He'll lead you in these things. He'll help you and strengthen you. And he describes our God, notice, in two different ways here. He calls him here in verse 11, the God of love and the God of peace. What great descriptions of this God who is with me and who is with you. He's the God of love and he's with you. That is, he's the very source of unconditional sacrificial love. Oh, Lord, it is so hard to love this person. And God says, I know you don't have to love them. I'm an unconditional, perfect, loving God. And as you live in relationship with me and I am with you, I will let you experience my great love for you. And then I will work through you to express not your love, but my love to that person. And as the God of love, I will shed my love in your heart by the spirit to express that love to them. Oh, Lord, it's so hard. I just, I'm struggling with being at peace. I'm so agitated or I'm so just overwhelmed or frustrated. I just struggle with being at peace. And, and God says, that's fine. I'm a God of peace. I am your peace. The problem is, is you're trying to make yourself peaceful. And God's saying, stop trying to make yourself peaceful. Just, just yield to relationship with me more. Because the Bible says that not only do we have peace with God when we accept Jesus, that is, we don't have to worry about being condemned to hell because of our sin, we can have, I've made my peace with God. Hey, even if life stinks, and it really can stink sometimes, I'm gonna be okay in the end. And this is just a blink in time. It's a vapor. Seems long now, but in comparison to the reality of living forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and, did I say that? Yeah, ever. Perfect, blissful peace forever. It's all going to be okay. And the Bible says he can give us peace that passes understanding. That is, he can give us an experience of peace so that we can become peaceful. And then also, Lord, I don't know how to make peace with this person. I'm a God of peace. I reconciled the world to myself. I'll help you. I'll show you how to be a peacemaker. I'll show you how to live peacefully and, and how to do what requires to seek peace or maintain peace as we live in harmony in relationship with God. Paul says, verse 12, Greet one another with a holy kiss. And again, I mentioned holy. I have a wife and three daughters. Two of them are married, so their husbands can beat you up now. But 
Verse 13, all the saints, Paul says, also greet you. Now, notice the language here, verse 12 and 13. Again, all scriptures inspired and profitable for doctrine, right? Reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we have to be told that? Why do we got to be reminded twice about these group greet you and greet one another? Well, the language conveys the idea of expressing kindness, expressing care to one another, extending a kind greeting, Paul mentions, via verbal communication or even an expression of physical affection, whether it's a holy hug or a holy kiss on the cheek in a pure way, that was a common way to display care for one another. It was something they did to be kind and compassionate. In the ancient culture, they emphasized a display of courtesy, of compassion, of kindness in spirit to one another to facilitate healthy relationships. See, when you greet a person, you make them what? Feel loved. When you greet a person, you make them feel valued and welcomed and that they matter. The contrast is when a person is ignored, right, or they're disregarded or they're brushed aside, what happens then? They feel hurt. They feel unwelcome. They feel unloved. And that hinders relationship connection when God wants to facilitate greater relationship connection. Therefore, he says, intentionally seek to be extending, he tells the Christians, to be extending greetings to one another via verbal communication or loving, pure expression and physical contact, that was encouraged to build healthy relationship. And look, I think what the Bible is reminding us is this should characterize the atmosphere of the church family. What should characterize the atmosphere of the church family is a caring disposition among the Lord's people, a place of kindness and love where we're valued and we care about one another, where we make people feel loved and important, that they matter. And again, can I say what I said earlier? The world is a brutal place out there, is it not? And people get beat up and disregarded and brushed aside and hurt. And people are hurting with family problems and friend and work issues. And people get treated horrible. I just was in Ace Hardware yesterday. I was uh, getting some... Uh, grassy there. I was trying to read the bag there because I hate doing lawn work, but my wife wants some grass in an area of our yard. So I'm, that's why I have this little blister, by the way. So I'm reading the bag of grass seed. My foot's up on my cart. I'm reading a bag of grass seed. All of a sudden, this dude comes up and he chest bumps me real hard in the shoulder, kind of you know knocks me off kilter. And I turn and look, and he's got a mask on. I didn't have a mask on. And there's a reason behind this because I'm thinking to myself, how did you not notice? So he chest bumps me hard. He goes, yo, what's up? And I was like, hey, man, how's it going? How's it going? There are cameras on. Can I punch you back? You know, just... And then he goes for another one. Yo, what's up? Three times he gives me a yo, what's up? And he says, oh, I thought you were my brother. I'm thinking, you're the one with the mask on. You mistake me for your brother? I mean, good thing that I have some degree of self-control from the Holy Spirit. I mean, you just chest bumped me for no reason. And you thought I was your brother. You can't. T- I mean... Okay, you know, just but people out in the world treat each other horrible. Look, folks, just in this last week, from Sunday to Sunday, from last Sunday to this Sunday, last Sunday to this Sunday, I've spoken to individuals. One was a teenager that got murdered. Another situation was infidelity in a marriage. Another situation, I've spoken to two people this past week where suicide was a part of their situation. One week, one person, two suicides, adultery, and a murdered teenager. That's a cruel world out there. We need to have something different going on in the body of Christ. Loving and caring and kindness and greeting. And this is what Paul, I think, is kind of bringing this to mind. He closes with his benediction, verse 14, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice in Paul's closing benediction here, his closing prayer or blessing, a clear reference to the Trinity. Very evident there, the Trinity, the truth of one God existing and manifested in three distinct persons, equal in their deity and their power and attributes, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, unique in their roles, yet unified in the way that they operate 
for our spiritual welfare and highest good. Paul's wishing that these believers would have a full relational encounter with the entire Trinity, with God the Father and God the Son Jesus and God the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted them, he says, to be experiencing the grace of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to know Jesus' grace in salvation, to experience being saved as an unworthy sinner by the grace of God and to be forgiven and accepted by his gracious acceptance and forgiveness, to experience Jesus' kind grace all the times that we still fail and make mistakes, that as we confess our sins, he forgives and cleanses us in such a gracious way, to understand how to live by grace, by living in relationship with Jesus and not living by rules and rituals of what it means to be holy or be a Christian. To experience the grace of our Lord and supernatural empowerment to serve. And even as Paul said last chapter, to experience his grace that's sufficient in the painful problems that we go through and God allows to be a part of our lives. Paul also wanted them to know the love of, notice he says, God the Father. That is to know the amazing love of a father in salvation. And some people, I had a wonderful father, some people don't know that. But to have this loving father figure, this God of love, who is a father figure, shows love and, and embraces a child and to experience that in salvation and to experience it in the many ways and to receive God's supernatural love continually as, as a stabilizer in your life and to be a channel to express it to others. And Paul also wanted them to encounter, notice, the communion that is to partner or to have experiential fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That is to experience the Holy Spirit coming into your life in salvation, supernatural conversion, and then to experience the power continually of the Holy Spirit helping you live a Christian life. The Holy Spirit helping you to overcome sin and selfishness and struggles with your sin nature. The Holy Spirit helping you to have relationship with God, whether it's to understand the Bible or to worship properly or to pray as the Spirit helps and to obey what God asks and to live that way. The Holy Spirit to give us power to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can use our Christian lives to spend it to serve others. And Paul says, let me just say something in connection to that verse 14. He says, let it be so, amen. <laughs> let it be so. Because Paul knew that if we have healthy relationship with God, then, and only then, really, can we have healthy relationships with other people. Let's stand together.